Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Mark Earls, making better decisions and why it's a good idea to know how we make up our minds. I would not recommend going grocery shopping if you're hungry. Exactly. We know that you buy different stuff. So, Or maybe don't vote when you're angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the thought. <laughs> now, um, if, uh, if I find myself in a bar, uh, in a British bar, I tend to have a glass of beer. That's how it goes. That's what you have in those environments. Unless somebody else around me goes, oh, gin and tonic. Yes, no, I haven't had a gin and tonic for a long time. Let's have a gin and tonic then, so we both have the same thing. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and the power of we... How we make decisions by copying others, our friends, our neighbors, our tribe. The importance of social influence in shaping human decisions. Do consumers and voters make rational choices, or do we mostly rely on our feelings or our sense of identity? Also, is emotion playing a greater role in how we make up our minds and who we vote for? This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And our producer, Miranda Schaefer. And we're also joined by one of the most interesting people I've met in the past six months consumer behavior and marketing expert Mark Earls, who's on Skype from London. Uh, welcome, Mark. Hello there. Mark is the author of Copy, 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 How to Do Smarter Marketing by Using Other People's Ideas, and Heard, How to Change Mass Behavior by Harnessing Our True Nature. Mark, many of us have been shocked, <laughs> shocked by the popularity of Donald Trump. So how does his story and his rise fit into your research about how we make up our minds? Well, I think it's, it's a great example of, uh, uh, of how people aren't really choosing on the basis of the thing itself. And that's surprising to all of us. We imagine that people consider in something as important as politics, the pros and cons, uh, the policies, the persona. But we don't really. Much of the time, we just choose what other people choose. Most of us fall into uh, established patterns. But it's the people in the middle that really count. Um, and that's where politicians are aiming. They're always wondering about momentum. Who are the people that people are talking about? Who are the people that people see other people moving towards? Um, so popularity is very often not the number of people who uh, 
see or know of something or vote for something. It's actually popularity is a function of what people see other people doing. And it shapes a lot of stuff in our in our lives, from the names we give our children to uh, the brand of uh, cereal we buy for the morning. So what you're saying is, is that the way we make up our minds about politics and other things is not really the result of individual rational thought. Oh, it's absolutely not to do with individual rational thought. All you have to do is to read any of the below-the-line comments or follow a Twitter conversation um, where people engage with each other about politics, um, and uh, you'll see that it's very little to do with rationality. Um, people hear what they want to hear. Our minds are not these individual calculating things that perhaps we've been taught they are. The human beings, uh, human beings have got this amazing ability to use the minds of other people, and we don't know very often when we're doing it. We imagine, like my mother did when she named me Mark, that we're making a decision that's entirely to do with the personal and specific circumstances. She was a, a translator translating from German into English, and so she typed the word Deutschmark many, many, many times <laughs> uh, while she was carrying me. The truth is that I am part of a cohort of British men of a certain age uh, who were called Mark. She thought she was acting independently, choosing because I was so special and she had this experience. But the truth is she was just doing what other people were doing. And we, we do it all the time. And clearly Jim and I were named by rational choice. I mean, right. Jim and Richard, very, you know, you know very individual and names. When my, when, my, when my son got to college, he told me, he said, his name is Benjamin. He said, and he called himself Benji. He said, Dad, there are 16 boys in my class named Benjamin, but I'm the only Benji. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, they, I'm an individual, right? right the Monty right. Python line but, has it. Now, Mark, you've said thinking is hard. We don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Uh, I mean that the idea of thinking that because our, you know, our minds are not made for calculation, uh, in that sense, some people can do it really well, and you have to learn the discipline of doing it really well if you're going to be good at it. When I'm in an Italian restaurant, for example, I tend to have risotto because my wife doesn't eat risotto, so we so we don't have it at home. So I have it in an Italian restaurant. Now, um, if uh, if I find myself in a bar uh, in a British bar, I'll tend to have a glass of beer. That's how it goes. That's what you have in those environments, unless somebody else around me goes, oh. Gin and tonic. Yes. No, I haven't had a gin and tonic for a long time. Let's have a gin and tonic then. So we both have the same thing. So, you know, when Trump started this campaign, all the experts thought that he was uh, too out there, too extreme and really in a way too laughable uh, mm -hmm. to be taken seriously as a candidate. Is it possible that maybe he understands in an intuitive way the way that people think? I think that's absolutely right. He's much smarter than he gives then we give him credit for. He gets that uh, people need to feel stuff rather than think about it, that they get the impression of what he's on about rather than any particular policies. And uh, he's managed all the way through the program to get other people talking about him. Yeah, Whereas I mean, in, the, in all of the debates we've had that, it's all been about Trump. And so, so therefore, it's Trump or nothing else. So that's a really smart, you know, positioning thing a marketing guy would call it, I guess. But in, he's even smarter than that, I think, because he has managed to not be nailed on a particular political promise of any particular sort. Other politicians seem to think that it's about policy lines that people make up their minds, and it isn't. 
Yeah, policies I, I, are largely irrelevant. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that because I think Ted Cruz in particular has also been sort of stunned by the popularity of Donald Trump and keeps insisting that Trump is not a true conservative. And it seems yeah. that, that even social conservative voters don't really care that much when it comes to Donald Trump and his policy positions. No, absolutely right. The policy is much less important than you think. I've done a lot of work with a you know a major Japanese um, electronics company over the years, and they struggled as an engineering business to realize that people don't choose cameras and smartphones, TV sets, and so on on the basis of the engineering features of the thing, or even on the benefits of it. It's the feeling that counts. So it is with politics. Trump keeps getting more popular because he's popular. And everyone can see that everyone else is just a bit of a political dweeb, right? By comparison. You know, there's uh, there's a parallel there with Bernie Sanders as well. That brilliant ad that he did, it had absolutely mm. no, uh, um, that just showed all the faces of Americans and with, uh, over the uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, We've All Come to Look for America. It had zero absolutely. content. It was like Reagan's Morning in America. Zero, oh, zero policy content, but a wonderful f- communal feeling. So, so that's right. So when I was going to pick you up there on zero content, I think it's got a huge amount of content. Hmm. But informational in the sense that we normally think about it, in political terms, that might be, you know, in terms of policy. If it was a product, it might be the features of the product or what the product can do or the price. Those are messages, informational messages that are just much less relevant than we imagine to how people decide. You know, if you think back, Apple figured this out. Even though they were building products that were that were very much cutting edge, you remember mm. the old Mac and I'm a Mac and I'm a PC ad? Sure. Everybody wanted to be part of the Mac tribe, the cool, slim guy who's who's really hip and does artistic work and not the dweeby, chubby guy. Who, the, the, uh, John, the John yeah, Houseman figure, right, right? who, you know, who probably does, you know, spreadsheets for some boring insurance company or something. That's So that's exactly it. I, uh, one of the most useful strategies that anyone can use to get people to adopt a behavior is to point out who else does it. This is not about being an individual successor. It's about being part of a group of people. Okay, well, you're a marketing guy, okay? Mm-hmm. You advise a lot of companies and, and about how to improve their brand image and how to sell stuff more effectively. Give me an example right now. What's the most difficult thing that you have to get over to many of your clients about the consumer and about the way we make up our minds? So I think here's the most most difficult thing, which is it's the space between people, between customers and between consumers. That is the most important one, not the space between their ears. Explain that. So we tend to think about people's behavior being shaped by what goes on with the gray matter between our ears our brains, our minds. And the truth is most of the decisions uh, seem to be shaped uh, at least 50% between people. So what you say, what my friends say, what, what we've accepted as a rule of thumb, how to make a decision about this stuff, this seems like a good make a car, this beer is okay, and how do I know that? Well, I know that because other people seem to be drinking it. Do you see what I mean? So this is the, this is the hard thing. It's that the, 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 the success... Uh, and popularity of a particular behavior or a particular choice is shaped between people and not in an individual's head. So, Mark, I'm, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, I'm the son of a Chicago school free market um, economist. And so I was raised really on this idea that, that people uh, – 
do make rational decisions and and they're very adept at figuring out their own self-interest. So I, I'm going to push back a little bit. You mentioned products. So I, I used to work with Car and Driver and Road and Track magazines that invested huge resources in testing cars. And those tests were based on you know, real concrete parameters, zero to 60 times braking times, as well as some uh, subjective things that these expert testers could could sense. Those those reviews were influential. You're saying they were influential more for social reasons than for scientific reasons? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how it works. Most of the time, even with, and I've looked at this in expert communities in, for example, in computing or in, in uh, cameras, so interesting. Photography is a really interesting space. And the experts there all defer to each other. Yes, of course, they have a background, but they use other people's opinions to reassure themselves about it. In the review of why the opinion pollsters did so badly in predicting the outcome of the last UK general election, um, one of the main reasons was that they deliberately avoided contradicting each other without making a policy of it. They all heard it as a, the, the classical economics um, term has it so they they stayed within a within the range because none of them wanted to be called out by Nate Silver. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that was a real that was a so, really interesting example because the the Conservative Party in Britain last year won a much bigger majority than any of the pollsters or certainly the vast majority of pollsters had predicted and and it was really cited as a, an example of of opinion polls failing on the job. They heard it. They copied each other. And we see this a lot in, uh, in different aspects of life. But it, it's rooted, the reason why it's important is that it's rooted in our inability to uh, do the heavy lifting of individual thinking that, we, that Jim, you were raising, you know, classical economics. So the fathers of behavioral economics, so Daniel Kahneman and Tversky, his research partner, mm-hmm. their original work was done uh, with medical profession, healthcare professionals who you'd think would be quite numerate and have an ability to read data. There was no difference, essentially, in the mistakes of the medical professionals and the patients. So they're no better just because they are professionals and experts at doing the math than the other guys are. So it's not hopeless, is it, to to study this and then figure out ways that we could help doctors get over these unconscious biases and be more data-driven in these really crucial areas. I know. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, So I'm not saying that that they're completely wrong and useless. They're quite useful, but they're not the whole answer. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Okay, well, well, let's talk about the answers. At, at this mm-hmm. point in the show, we usually go, we're a solution show, and let's talk yeah, yeah. about solutions. So, okay, what are the lessons first for um, marketers or political campaigns in trying to get their message across more effectively than they do now? So the first thing to say is the message. Think about the message and whether what kind of message you are looking to put across. If it's a rational message, you may not be as successful as someone who's looking to create an emotional message, which is about social identity, and which might be shared, which might help people uh, interact with each other differently. Um, I think the second thing is really important is to know what kind of choice you've got going on, because there are many occasions where people are choosing just on the basis of habit. And uh, you, there are particular things, particular tactics and strategies you can use as a marketer to unpick habits. And I think the third thing is suggesting that we copy solutions from other people rather than trying to think up the best answer ever. If you know what kind of behavior trying to change, you can use that as a lens to look around the world. And let me give you one, give you one simple example. One of the leading, world's leading surgeons for pediatrics is a guy called Martin Elliott at London's famous Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, but he's doing these amazing operations on these tiny kids, and they're, they're 12-hour operations and, and just extraordinary. He was looking to improve the survival rate of these kids, and he identified the moment of transfer between the theatre team and the ICU team as the, as the opportunity. And... Uh, he looked around the world for other medical examples that he could copy, and he finally realized the answer was in Formula One motor racing. He's a big fan of it, and he happened to be finishing surgery one day when the highlights were on. He realized that pit stop. Because yeah, there are the, very the, few the pit stops in racing are astounding to watch. Extraordinary. I mean, they're very, very you, quick. You and I are old enough to remember the days when pit stops took 15, 20 seconds and they don't anymore. They take three, four, five seconds at most. And there's very rarely uh, an engineering human error as a result of it. He did this, and then he worked with, uh, with Ferrari to teach his hospital processes that, that uh, Ferrari use in pit stops to hand over from the theatre team to the uh, ICU team. So he could. He did this because he's able to say it's a handover problem. It's not a medical problem. It's a and, and, problem. and what did that do? That reduced so it, it, it significantly, rapidly improved the outcomes. Forty-two percent immediate reduction in human error. So in Mark, that one moment in in treatment, which is extraordinary, right? Um, 
and and important and more important than most of the stuff that I get involved in every day. <laughs> so, Mark, in your book, Copy, 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 you also talk about uh, lessons for individuals. Like a lot of times, we put such a premium in creative fields on originality, but you 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 argue that originality might be uh, a little bit overrated. That's exactly the point, uh, and I think it's it's overrated in the sense that we all have the ideas and products of other people's thinking all around us. Picasso famously said that, you know, talent copies, genius steals. Should we be more rational in the way we as individuals make uh, decisions or can't we fight our true beings? Should we just accept that we're emotional? There are things that we can do to make sure we don't make decisions, important decisions in a entirely emotional state. I would not recommend going grocery shopping if you're hungry. Exactly. We know that you buy different stuff. So so just be aware of that. Don't make big decisions about your life when you're feeling down. Or maybe don't vote when you're angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the thought. No, I, look, I, I think that's right. Deep down, I have this feeling that we don't like this other side of ourselves, this emotional and social side of ourselves very much. It's very, uh, it's very antithetical to our... North American, North European culture of the individual. Um, uh, but I think it's a really important aspect of who we are. And it's something that we, we undervalue. Other countries and other cultures don't undervalue it so much. Africa, Asia and, and Latin America have much, and Scandinavia have a much stronger sense of the we side of us. Um, and if we can learn how to use it better, then I think we we can, as I suggest in the book, copy, 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 we can make more advances more quickly and with less pain. Mark Earls, author of Copy, Copy, Copy and other tracks. Thanks very much for joining us from London via Skype. Yes, thank you. Great. Thank you very much, guys. Before you go, I just want to ask Miranda, our producer, any thoughts? What, what did we miss? Do you think that the idea that we don't want to think applies to how we buy things in terms of calculating size versus cost or sales. I think this is a really, really interesting point. Our minds aren't set up to do this heavy rational calculating piece. Um, and that's why we so easily get ourselves mixed up trying to calculate the difference between a litre and a gallon um, and whether it's worth it to have three for the price of two of an expensive thing or just buy three of the cheaper thing you know we make mistakes and we use all kinds of different solutions different shorthands to to get to that um and sometimes we can be exploited in that way and and that's why we have things like regulation on uh, on marketing and advertising and uh, people can easily get confused on what looks like a really good deal but seems like actually in the end a, a sucker's deal and uh, we all feel a bit uncomfortable if we don't feel we've got ourselves a good deal. That's what that feeling is about. You know, when you've done a, you feel you've, you've bought a secondhand uh, uh, automotive and, or you've bought, you've bought a, uh, done a deal on a, on a holiday, you think, oh, I've got a great deal there. You probably haven't, but um, the important thing is that the, the vendor should make you feel that you have um, and uh, make you feel emotionally that you've been smart. And the feeling smart is more important than the actually being smart to us as individuals. How can uh, behavioral economics apply to other areas? Could we apply it to public health? Could we apply it to smoking, things like that? So there's, there's a huge application of this kind of uh, understanding of human beings to 
some of the big problems we face in, in our societies today. So things like obesity and uh, smoking and so on. And I've got to tell you, I smoked for many years and I worked on both tobacco and smoking cessation accounts. And it, uh, it took me a number of years and it wasn't the facts of the matter that made me stop and quit. It was, uh, it was what other people around me were doing. It became impossible. That, that's yeah. a that's a wonderful answer. Okay, yeah. Th- thanks so much, Mark. Great to speak with you, and uh, likewise, ho- hope we'll that's do it again. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really great stuff. Jim, we always like it when we get ratings and reviews, even if sometimes the reviews aren't 100%. Uh, Actually, sometimes I like the ones. Complimentary. I, I mean, listen, everybody needs constructive criticism, and our audience is really core to making this show work. Well, we got one from a guy called Thomas O'Grady, who is a PhD, which is, you know, I always look up to that. And he says, yeah, uh, like, how do we fix it? I had fun listening to this podcast. It starts with simple issues uh, to life's bigger issues, and this is so interesting. Thanks. So that, that's Great. that's good. Great. That's what we're trying to do. And for every all of our listeners, uh, if you're in iTunes, it's really good for the show's visibility if you actually download the show. We love it when you leave comments um, and ratings, especially if you like the show. But we're interested in, in the uh, critical comments, too. Constructive criticism is always welcome. And if you want to find out how to do all this stuff, just go to our website, which is howdowefixit.me. So, Jim, I think it's really easy to be kind of depressed about this, that we're such emotional beings and that we make up our minds largely as a result of what our neighbors and our friends and our family members think, rather than making that individual rational choice. Yes. And, you know, I think when we started this show, one of the things I was really hoping we could do is find a way to get people out of their comfortable tribal zones. You know, so much of the ideas about how government should work or politics is like, the good people are all on my side. The bad people are all on those other guys' side. And, you know, I think you and I both believe that if you can really set those emotions aside, look at some of the facts, let's let's make a new tribe in the middle. <laughs> you know, we've done a bunch of shows about this where we don't agree on everything. Right. But this, but, this shows how difficult it is. But, but this does show how difficult it is. I do think there's ways to encourage, uh, you know, rational conversation. And, in a, and we've, you know, we've done a number of pieces on that. It's not easy. And I think, you know, Mark's work shows you how easily we can snap into this tribal thinking both on the left and the right, certainly in a lot of elite circles today, universities, for example, I would say the tribalism on the left is is far more intense today, and it rivals anything you see at a Trump rally. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with you that the, the tribalism on the left is stronger than it is on the right. I think it's very strong on both sides. But uh, one of the people that you got me to read, and I do read him regularly, and I often don't agree with him, but he's, but he's refreshing, is Glenn Reynolds, who is a a guest on one of our earlier shows here on how do we fix it right right so glenn has a piece glenn writes a column in uh usa today he's got a really interesting column over the weekend and he he talks about this concept what's called a preference cascade and the theory is that in many societies there are um certain viewpoints or ideas that are looked that are frowned upon they are they're low status uh and certainly in in elite circles media universities if you said some of those ideas you would be uh, ostracized and shunned so they're suppressed but people beneath that surface maybe start believing things maybe they have an issue with immigration maybe they're fed up with political correctness maybe they want um you know they're mad at at politicians but then all of a sudden something happens and that cracks and then people realize oh 
other people think this too. It's right. okay to say this out loud. Certainly, I think part of what's made Trump's rise so powerful is this preference cascade. All of a sudden, everybody looks around and says, oh, lots of other people feel the way I do. I never really talked about it much because it was – I might people might, might uh, humiliate me. But now we can say this stuff out loud. I was just up in northern New Hampshire over the weekend. You know, very hard-pressed rural area, economy in decline. I saw Trump signs everywhere. I didn't see signs for any other candidate. Yeah, it is alarming to me. But I think that the, the Donald Trump really has the, the prospect of also taking votes from uh, Democrats as well as from Republicans. Uh, you know, this I've, is not just a Republican you, phenomenon. You've heard me say this from the start, Richard. I submit that if Trump had run as a Democrat, he would also be popular. Maybe not quite as popular, but he's not espousing real conservative views. He's espousing... Uh, he's espousing populist views with a lot of macho intensity. And native, nativist views and even racist views, too. I think that if if he had started out on the Democratic side being anti-free trade, anti-foreigner, there he would have found an audience. Well, let me just pivot to something that's completely not political. I was thinking when uh, Miranda was asking uh, Mark about how we buy things, and, and Mark was also talking earlier about our emotional decision-making, my example is going into the wine store. I mean, <laughs> I, I love wine. But I know nothing about it. And the way that I make decisions on the wine that I buy, you know, Chianti versus Rioja and Bordeaux, it's the labels on the, on the, on sure. the wine. It, sure. it, you well, know, I, mean, I think I know what I like, but boy, a lot of it's emotion. Okay, this wine cost a certain amount of money. The people who know a lot about wine must be willing to pay this. I would submit that's actually a pretty good judge. You know, it's really rare if you go out and buy a $6 bottle of wine and you put it next to a $25 bottle of wine and you did a blind test that anybody who knows anything about wine is going to like that $6 bottle. Maybe. Um, that's 6 versus 25, but but the 9 versus 15, boy, that's, maybe, a, that's a total crapshoot. Maybe. But I, I, I think the price signals actually work reasonably well. It's a very comforting thought. The next time I buy anything that I think is a little expensive, I will think of well, you, Jim. You know, you got to stay out of those trendy, <laughs> upscale, Upper West Side shops. Oh, I'm not sure I can. Okay. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Banks. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer and our audio engineer, Denise Barberita. Here at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits.